Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jane Richards, and today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Professor Lisa Waddington and Professor Anna Lawson about their edited book, The UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities in Practice, a Comparative Analysis of the Role of the Courts, published by Oxford University Press in 2018. Now, before we get into our conversation, I'd just like to briefly tell you about our guest today. Professor Lisa Waddington is a professor of European Disability Law at the Faculty of Law at Maastricht University in the Netherlands. The professorship was established in cooperation with the University Disability Forum. Anna Lawson is a professor in disability and law at the University of Leeds. She's the joint director of the university-wide Interdisciplinary Centre for Disability Studies and the coordinator of the Disability Law Hub at the University of Leeds. The book that Lisa and Anna join me today to speak about is an extremely comprehensive book. It's the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities in Practice. This edited collection of 19 chapters offers extensive analysis of how domestic courts across 13 jurisdictions have implemented the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. It is certainly a must-read for any scholar interested in disability law, international law and human rights. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome you both, Professor Lisa Waddington and Professor Anna Lawson, to the show. Thank you very much, Jane. Thanks for being here. Thank you. And now just to get us started with the traditional New Books Network first question, I'm wondering, Lisa, perhaps you can tell me how you came to write the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities in practice, a comparative analysis of the role of the courts. Uh, thank you very much, Jane. Well, it, the project began in a very modest way. And, and as you know, as you've read the book, it became a very, uh, very thick book, a very quite, a, quite an extensive project. Um, so in 2015, I was lucky enough to have the opportunity to spend some months at Melbourne Law School on sabbatical at Melbourne University. And I, I, a year or more before I went, I'd been thinking about projects which I could undertake whilst I was in um, Melbourne. And one of the things that came to mind was uh, writing a paper looking at how Australian courts were using the UN Convention, the Disability Convention. So I spoke to some colleagues in Australia to see if this this was actually happening in practice. And I did some research online using databases which uh, report on court decisions. And I found that there were a good number of decisions, good number of judgments in which Australian courts were referring to the convention. Um, and they were doing different things with it. Sometimes it, mostly it wasn't really having much uh, impact, but sometimes there were, were quite ex- there was quite extensive engagement with the convention by the Australian courts. So I thought, well, this is, this is, a, good, this is a good project um, to work on. Um, and as I um, began to read more about um, the, so this the general literature on, on, on the use of international uh, law and international human rights treaties by domestic courts. Um, uh, I became more engaged in the subject and I began to think that there might be some mileage in actually extending this project and looking at how courts in, in different jurisdictions were 
um, were, were using the convention. And I also came across literature written by um, Anthea Roberts, an Australian academic on comparative international law. Um, so this was, for me, this was a fairly new um, concept. Um, we know what international law is. We know what comparative law is. Comparative international law looks at how different jurisdictions, different states are incorporating and using international law within within the within the domestic setting. Um, now, one area in which um, states uh, you know use and refer to international law is is through court judgments. So these are emanations of the state. Um, and Chris McCrudden has uh, talked talked about comparative human rights international law. So uh, it was clear that this was a very, very interesting area of law. But in terms of the literature that was available, it, it was rather limited. And most of that literature was, um, it was more theoretical, talking about how courts could be using um, international law and, 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 and what, what the comparisons might reveal. But there were very few case studies, uh, or if you like, real comparative analysis, looking at how courts were using international law or a specific human rights treaty. But the only, um, the only um, literature that, that, that we came across at that time was work by Christopher McCrudden, um, an academic from Northern Ireland, uh, and, and he had written a paper looking at how courts in various different jurisdictions were using the Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women. So it, it became clear that this was an interesting area of law, but there was very little um, comparative analysis actually being done. And at, at that point, I thought, well, I'd, I'd like, I'd, I would like to um, um, work in this area and see if we can carry out uh, a comparative analysis of how courts in different jurisdictions are using the Disability Convention. Now, clearly, that was going to be a big project. Um, uh, and for that reason, I reached out to Anna, Anna Lawson um, at Leeds, uh, and Anna and I have worked together on many different projects for, for many uh, for many years. And Anna was immediately enthusiastic about it and and, and came on board. Um, so uh, really, Jane, that 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 is how the project ca- came about. It began with just the idea to write one paper, and then it grew into a, a book of uh, over six hundred pages. And it took uh, four hmm. years to go from that. You know, the, the, those are four. I think five years actually that initial idea to to the publication of the book. Um, And just in terms of methodology, I'm wondering if you want to talk about how you sort of, um, like what your approach to methodology was. Yeah, so so Jane, we we spent a great deal of time thinking about how to... uh, yeah, how to carry out this research and how to and how to ensure that we were able to really produce a volume which contained a a good comparative element. So, I mentioned before that uh, I, I carried out quite extensive reading, uh, as did Anna, on the concept of comparative international law, and I, I drew inspiration from the work of uh, Professor Anthony Roberts, Professor Melissa A. Waters, and Professor Christopher McCrudden, as I mentioned. So by reading all of that literature, I was I was able to um, be, begin to pin down what it was exactly that we were we wanted to compare, what it is we wanted to know from our country authors uh, and the country chapters, um, and that and that led me to produce a template, and it was quite I mean it was quite a long template. It was probably about ten pages long, um, 
which um, explained exactly what we what we were looking for. And if you look at the chapters, Jane, you'll see that they're all structured in a, a rather similar way. And this was to facilitate comparison. So the template and the chapters begin with uh, a section on international human rights treaties and the status of international human rights treaties in domestic law. So obviously we're pulling out if, if the systems are monist or dualist and, and, and other related aspects. Then, the, then there's a section on, on the status of the CRPD, how the CRPD has been incorporated into domestic law. Then in the third section, the third part of the template, we, we address and we asked our country authors to address how the domestic courts were actually using the CRPD. So you'll find lots of um, comparable information in, in that part of the, of the chapter. So which courts, for example, were referring to the convention, the number of references that are made uh, before each court, um, the, the articles that were being referred to, why it seemed that courts were actually referring to those articles. For example, was it because a party to the case was raising the convention in, in their argument, or was the court doing this of its own volition? Uh, and also the way in which the convention was being used uh, by the courts. Then the, 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 the next main section actually looks at the interpretation of the CRP articles. So we're not asking here how the courts were using uh, the convention or what impact it was having, but um, are these courts actually interpreting any of these provisions? Uh, and if so, what is the, 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 the interpretation? And then obviously the, 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 there's a conclusion at the end. So you'll see in the book that all of the chapters follow this same structure, and that was very important in order to allow us to um, make the comparison. Um, as, as you said, the, the, the book is divided into two sections, the country chapters and then a series of chapters written by Anna and myself with the last chapter by Christopher McCrudden in, win, in which we actually draw out comparisons. So, for example, we look at how each individual article of the convention has been interpreted by, by different courts. Um, and we were able to do that by... You know, first of all, investing all this effort in drawing up the template and uh, and providing guidance to the country authors, and then the huge amount of effort that the country authors put into writing their papers and and, and um, sticking with the template, but also understanding the overall goal of our project in terms of comparative international law. So, in fact, I, I'd say it was we spent a, a year, more perhaps more than a year, in actually on the methodology and, and, and obviously contacting our country authors um, and laying the groundwork um, before we actually asked our country authors to start writing the chapter. So um, there was a, a great deal of thought put into the methodology that we use in the book and, and uh, I feel that it paid off because in writing those comparative chapters with Anna, uh, we were able to really make the comparisons based on these chapters that, that, that you know, were written in such a way that allowed us to do that. Now, just drawing this all together, I'm wondering if you can comment on any surprising or unexpected findings that came out of this comparative research. When we study international law, we're told there's or international law in interaction with domestic law. We're told there's an important difference between monist systems uh, where international law becomes part of the legal order uh, as soon as the treaty is ratified and dualist systems where the international law is seen as, as something separate from domestic law and it has to be incorporated in some way into the domestic legal system if it's going to have uh, 
effect or impact or confer rights. Um, so we started off with that, you know, that classical distinction. And I think what one of the surprising findings that came out of the research is that in reality, there was not that much difference between how courts were using the convention in monist systems compared to dualist systems. Now, in monist systems, there is the potential for um, the, the, the convention to be given direct effect or have direct applicability. Uh, and that happened very occasionally, uh, for example, uh, uh, in, in, in Spain. But um, it didn't happen very often. So even though courts had the potential to uh, find the convention to be directly applicable and conferring rights directly on individuals in monist systems, it happened rather rarely. Um, what happened far more often in both the monist systems and the dualist systems was that courts were using the convention um, to help them to interpret domestic law. Um, now, uh, that didn't necessarily mean that the convention was um, actually having an impact or, 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 or being determinative for the final decision, the final judgment. Sometimes, certainly, that was the case. And we, 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 our project identified many, many judgments in which the convention really had... Uh, an influence on the outcome of the judgment. But in many cases, the courts in both the dualist and the monist systems seem to be using the convention to support an argument, to support a decision that they were already uh, very minded to make anyway. So I think one surprising finding was that the distinction between monist and dualist systems in terms of the use of the convention by courts simply wasn't that great. Uh, we, we, I think we had expected it to be more uh, uh, bigger than it was. Second, perhaps, perhaps surprising, perhaps not surprising, I'm not sure, but let's say a second finding was that when the courts were... Um, referring to the convention, and even when they were using it to support a decision uh, that they were minded to make, to support an interpretation of domestic law that they were already intending to, to, to interpret in a certain way, um, or indeed when they were using the convention to um, in a way that impacted on the final judgment, we found that it was very rare for courts to actually engage in an interpretation of an article of the convention. So the courts um, were somehow able to refer to the convention, perhaps, and, and cite the relevant article, and then proceed to interpret domestic law without really engaging in, a, in an interpretation of a particular provision of the convention. Now, that did happen sometimes, uh, very occasionally, uh, and we can talk about that as well. But most of the time, the courts were not certainly not explicitly interpreting the convention. And sometimes you had to dig quite deep to even find a kind of implicit interpretation. So I think those were some of the findings which uh, were perhaps unexpected uh, when we began this project. So then I guess sort of like somewhere in between this, Lisa, can you tell us whether any patterns that emerged between the 13 jurisdictions in the study? Well, the, uh, there was certainly a lot of diversity um, and looking for for patterns is um, uh, I, I think we, we, we can see see some patterns um, so the Dutch uh, academic Andre Nolkemper has has argued that uh, domestic courts can sometimes act as agents of the international legal order so if you like they're protectors um, they're champions, they're guardians of international human rights law, and they see themselves as playing a role on the international stage. I think one of the emerging 
findings of of our research was that it was very rare for the, the, the domestic courts to see to, to see themselves as having this role. To it was very rare for them to play the role as, as a guardian or a protector of the of the CRPD. Um, in almost all instances, the courts saw themselves as acting in a domestic context. Their role was to interpret and apply domestic law and. On occasions, the CRPD was relevant and helpful for them to do that, and, and and but they also said on many occasions that the CRP was not relevant or helpful for them to do that. Now, there were a few exceptions. There were individual cases, so a single case in Kenya, in India, and Argentina, where you could say that the court, uh, the courts there, did seem to be taking on the role of, of champions and protectors of of, of the CRPD and. And, and working as agents of, of international human rights law. But in the main, the courts were acting in a domestic context um, and they were interpreting and applying domestic law and the convention was sometimes relevant um, in that context. And in fact, this finding is also consistent with the finding of Christopher McCrudden in the work that he's done on the Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women. And he too found that the courts were rarely taking on the role of kind of protector or champion of CEDAW, um, but they were acting as domestic agents. So I think that's um, a pattern uh, which we find uh, goes across the, the jurisdictions that we, we looked at in the book. Um, and so then in terms of how the courts were acting in a domestic context, there were similar there were some similarities but also divergences between um, the different jurisdictions. So I'm interested to know now uh, whether any state parties that seem to lag behind others in terms of their willingness to read legislation consistently with the CRPD. And was this related to the state party being a dualist system? Maybe, Lisa, you can build on this. Um, you spoke about the difference or the similarities between uh, monoism and dualism just earlier. Yeah, so um, I'm, I'm not going to talk about lagging behind, but I, but I think mm-hmm. we do see, mm-hmm. I do see, we do mm-hmm. see uh, courts in certain jurisdictions having more limited possibilities to engage with the convention. And and Jane, I do think this is um, to some extent uh, to 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 do with uh, the, the, the dualist approach. Um, so in the first case, uh, I'd refer to the chapter uh, and the work that, that has been done on Ireland. And our chapter on, on Ireland was written by Eleanor Flynn. Um, a fantastic chapter. Ireland at this point, when Eleanor wrote her, her chapter, had not ratified the convention. So you can imagine the, the domestic courts in Ireland were saying, well, you know, the convention hasn't been ratified by Ireland, so we can't do anything with it. Um, in fact, if you look at that chapter, you'll also see that the convention did have uh, impact uh, in Ireland and, and, and also on court judgments in Ireland, even before it was ratified. But that was because it had the status of EU law. The European Union had ratified or concluded the, the CRPD, and also because the CRPD was um, influencing the interpretation of the European Convention on Human Rights. So it was kind of coming in through the back door, through other through these other legal instruments but directly of course uh, the Irish courts um, were subject to this limitation the the state hasn't ratified the convention so we can't really do anything directly with it in Australia which is a a dualist system um, the courts also were subject to limitations in what they could do with the convention Um, 
Australia ratifies many human rights treaties, but very rarely um, incorporates them into domestic legislation. And this is the case for the CRPD. A couple of pieces of legislation, including the Disability Discrimination Act, were amended uh, with references to the CRPD to bring them into line with uh, CRPD requirements. And that opened the door for Australian courts to refer to the convention when they were interpreting, the, for example, the Disability Discrimination Act, because it had a, a reference to, and had been amended in order to bring it in line with the convention. Um, but the Australian courts had very limited possibilities to re- rely on the convention in terms of a tool to interpretation uh, when it came to domestic legislation because of the strict dualist approach uh, that, that, that exists in Australia. Nevertheless, um, if you can find, I know you've read the chapter, Jane, and, and, and speaking to your listeners, if you can find the time to read the chapter, um, you will see that there were no, quite a number of decisions uh, of courts in Australia where they did find ways of using the convention um, and using it as a, to, to bolster an interpretation that they were going to give anyway, or in some cases to actually um, uh, to push them to, to, to develop a new interpretation of the law uh, in light of the convention. So I think the, the, the limitations that, that we identified, um, perhaps not surprising, firstly, in terms of whether a state has ratified the convention or not, and secondly, certainly in terms of the limitations that um, courts can be subject to in dualist states. And then on the flip side of this, there was a what you could argue to be like seemingly a striking failure in an uptake of Article 24, which is on the right to education, and in particular any moves towards inclusive education. Um, Lisa, perhaps can you comment on the findings with regards to Article 24? Um, well, it, it's certainly true that it, that Article 24 didn't um, well, didn't come up very often in in the case of some jurisdictions, but I think um, uh, in the case of Italy, at least, um, there were some significant developments. Uh, so the the Italian Constitutional Court um, actually declared unconstitutional a law which set a maximum number of hours of support that could be provided by support teachers for children with disabilities in public schools. So they set a a limit on on, on the funding. The law set a limit on on, on the funding that was available for that. Um, The Constitutional Court held that this law infringed the right of education of children with disabilities. And in making that decision, they referred to Article 24. Now, I, I, I don't go so far, and, and, and our author of, the, of that chapter, Professor Dalia Ferry, doesn't go so far as to say this was because the court uh, referred to Article 24. Um, uh, rather, the court referred to Article 24 of the Convention on the Right to Education um, to as one of the reasons to support its decision. And, and what happened after this decision was made by the Constitutional Court was that there were numerous administrative court decisions at the regional level in Italy uh, concerning the right to education, which once again um, uh, rejected uh, limitations on the amount of support that could be provided to children with disabilities in public schools. And these courts, again, were all referring to Article 24 of of the Convention. So um, this perhaps reveals a a pattern um, where in some particular jurisdictions, um, 
particular articles uh, are for one reason or another being referred to quite often uh, and the courts are drawing on those articles. And that's in addition to, to the, those, those three sets of articles which Anna mentioned, which are, let's say that come out uh, more frequently than others, 12 and 12 on legal capacity, five and two on equality and non-discrimination, and article one on the concept of disability. So, uh, Jane, you're quite right to say that in, it, suddenly in some in some jurisdictions, much use wasn't made of Article 24. But on the other hand, we have, uh, for example, the, the situation in Italy where, where it was drawn on, on very significant um, legislative changes or, or rather le- changes following from the judgment of the Constitutional Court uh, took place. Um, yeah. Um, and I want to pick up on something you mentioned before, Lisa. You talked about the courts not often... Um, interpreting the CRPD. Um, One of the sort of exceptions to this was in relation to Article 12, which is in the right to equal legal capacity, and that's one that's received arguably the most attention in scholarship. scholarship. So in the book that you write, the authors on the chapters of Australia, Ireland, Kenya and Mexico also found that this provision actually attracted the most interpretive attention in domestic courts. I'm wondering if this um, attention reflects a meaningful paradigm shift. Um, perhaps, yeah. Uh, yeah, please go ahead. Anna, I, I, I might need your, your help in particular with this question. Um, I, I think it 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 depends somewhat on the case, but I think I, on the particular judgment. But I think we do see overall uh, in those jurisdictions a quite serious engagement with with. The, uh, with Article 12 and changes, uh, in some cases, changes being brought about whereby the courts are mandating that individuals be provided with uh, support to, to, to make decisions rather than have their legal capacity removed completely. Uh, Anna, w- w- which jurisdictions uh, in particular stood out in that respect? Um, we have a case from Argentina in where which the court stressed that a legal pre- presumption of capacity arose from the right to equality enshrined in Article 1 and Article 12 of the Convention, um, and that uh, restrictions on legal capacity based on disability amounted to discrimination. So there we really do see that the, the court uh, engaging with Article 12 and, and, and Article 1, and actually really I would say that reflects a paradigm shift of the approach to courts there. And so then um, sort of bringing it together a bit, can you identify any kind of interpretive convergence? Perhaps, Lisa, you can address this. Uh, well, um, we had an open mind when we set out on on, on this um, on this project, uh, but um, I, we were, I think, hoping to find... Um, um, some convergence, some uh, courts interpreting um, provisions of the of the convention in a common way, and of course that would reflect state practice, which is very uh, important in the context of international law. Well, what but what we found, uh, as I mentioned earlier, is that there was very little actual interpretation going on. Mm-hmm. Courts could. Um, let's say, refer to the convention and draw on the convention and use it in some way in their in their judgments and in their interpretation of domestic law without actually interpreting uh, the convention. Um, uh, so um, the interpretations were, 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 were rather scarce. Um, the, one of the reasons for this, um, I think, 
well, sorry, not one of the reasons for this, but but one of the factors that made identifying convergence uh, more complicated is that the courts were often looking at very different issues. So to the extent that they were engaging in interpretation or, or engaging with the convention, they were, they were engaging with it for, for, for different reasons to help them answer different questions. And that also meant um, that uh, if interpretation uh, did come out of the judgment, then um, it wasn't necessarily the same thing that the courts were interpreting. Um, so uh, I would say we didn't find interpretive convergence. And we didn't really find um, the opposite, uh, you know, disagreements or, or differences in, in interpretation. What we found was very little interpretation and when interpretation was fa- was identified uh, you know, and sometimes you had to look quite hard you had to kind of like interpret the interpretation yourself if you want um, and decide that this phrase did was some form of in, in, a certain phrase was some form of interpretation um, and when you did find interpretation the courts were interpreting different aspects uh, so you, you couldn't say it was you know, there was convergence or lack of convergence there was difference difference in terms of looking at different elements of the convention it would have been nice to have reached some conclusions on that Jane but at least based on our study across those jurisdictions and at this point in at that point in time we, we couldn't identify enough interpretations to, to really um, identify convergence um and so then you just mentioned that sometimes you had to look really hard in terms of looking at how, judge, uh, how the CRPD was interpreted. But can you talk a little bit about um, what were some of the techniques that were used by domestic court judges to interpret the CRPD? Um, perhaps, Anna, you could answer this. As I say, there, there wasn't very much interpretation going on. When there was interpretation, courts often didn't say how they, you know, the process that they followed. Um, but we did identify, as Anna says, the, the, these two approaches in a limited number of cases. So the first one being the use of the, the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties. And there was this one Australian judgment, uh, Nicholson and, and, and Nags, uh, which concerned Article 12, in which the judge, uh, Justice Vickery, really engaged with the Vienna Convention uh, rules and techniques to interpret Article 12. That was quite exceptional. There, were, there was no other judgment where the Vienna Convention was used in that way. Although some of our um, country authors noted that um, the judges, for example, in Kenya, may have been using the you know the rules set out the Vienna rules, uh, but uh, they weren't actually referring to the treaty. Uh, whilst our, our, the the author from from Germany, um, uh, he pointed out that that there's, the judges receive very little training in the Vienna Convention rules, and so while they maybe should be using that, they may not have the the knowledge or the awareness of them. Um, so you know, when you read textbooks on international law and and, and they talk about um, interpretation, they will pay a lot of attention to the Vienna Convention rules. But in reading these judgments, uh, we did not see the, the those courts placing the same amount of importance on, on the Vienna Convention rules as sometimes uh, comes out in in, in textbooks and in international law. And then the second approach was this pro persona principle the idea that human rights should be interpreted to um, 
really the um, the, the maximum uh, extent possible, and that is 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 is, is quite um, that is used in in, in Latin American uh, countries, and we saw uh, we did see uh, examples of of that approach as well. Um, but once again, little interpretation, even less explanation of how the interpretation was being done, if it was being done at all. Right. And then, I mean, I think I know the answer to this, but maybe you can just explain a little. Was there any evidence of judges engaging in any sort of transnational judicial dialogue? <laughs> well, that, 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 that's, a, that's a really interesting question. And I'd like to say that we found lots of... Um, yep. <laughs> and we very much asked our, our, our country experts to, to identify that. Um, and there were... Hard, there was hardly any. There was hardly any, and and it was it, one one case in India referred to a judgment of of the Court of Justice of the European Union, but as our country expert uh, Shreya Atre points out, that the Indian court somewhat misunderstood, or at least uh, didn't didn't apply the the, the, the judgment, or, or didn't uh, deal with the. Um, the issue in the same way as the Court of Justice of the European Union did, even though it seemed they were aspiring to do that. So there was some confusion there. And the other case um, concerned uh, a judgment in Ireland, um, which referred to a judgment in in the UK. Um, So the answer is really no. Not at mm-hmm. all, hardly at all. Um, but I, I do find it a very interesting topic and a very interesting issue. It's something I'd like to look into uh, more in the in the future. But for the purposes of this project, uh, no, Jane, not really. Mm-hmm. Now, just the last question today. Um, I'm firstly, I'm interested to know what you're working on now, um, and also how could further research build on the work of this book. Well, thank you. Well, to go back to, the, to one of your previous questions on transnational judicial dialogue, um, this is something I'm interested in, and I, and I, and I hope to uh, start work uh, on lo- looking at uh, a particular aspect of transnational judicial dialogue. Um, namely, I want to look at how judgments of European courts, and by that I mean the, the, the Court of Justice of the European Union and the European Court of Human Rights, I want to look at how those judgments are being referred to, being used uh, used in transnational judicial dialogue outside of Europe. So I'd, li- I'd like to look at how non-European courts are, are, are engaging in a dialogue with these, these European courts. Um, uh, secondly, I, I, I have... Um, this is really whetted my appetite. This book, book has really whetted my appetite for finding out about how courts are using other international human rights uh, treaties and and laws. So I, I, I I'd like to look at um, how um, some of the core UN human rights treaties are being used, and so and how some of the ILO conventions are being used by courts in certain jurisdictions. Um, now I, I hope to to carry out both of those projects. Uh, in Melbourne at Melbourne Law School, I, I, I would have um, I would have been to Melbourne already if it wasn't for COVID, and I hope that COVID will will uh, I will somehow be able to to go to Melbourne, and uh, I'm planning on working with uh, Professor Beth Gaze at Melbourne Law School on on some of those projects. And in terms of looking to the future um, uh, and the things that could still be done with with regard to the topics that we cover in in our book, I think Anna already mentioned. Um, 
um, some important uh, uh, possibilities for further research. Um, so this was really this was based on desk research. We read, and our country authors read a great deal of literature and a great deal of judgments, but we didn't have the possibility to speak to the judges and find out uh, what was you know, prompting them to refer to the convention and their, their approaches and their attitudes more. So I think that's that, that's room for further uh, for fur- that that has room for further reflection. Um, what we also what we didn't look at in this in this um, book also is we didn't look at judgments which um, are relevant from the perspective of disability rights but which make no reference to the convention. So all the searches we carried out were looking for judgments which referred to the CRPD. But I'm sure there is uh, there are many uh, many judgments in 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 all of these jurisdictions and more where the convention uh, could be relevant and, and could usefully be referred to and addressed. So it will be uh, also interesting to know not only you know, when courts are referring to the convention and how they're using it, but also when they're not referring to the convention and, and why they're not. And, uh, and uh, that's, of course, is a very difficult project to plan from a methodological perspective, but it's also very interesting, I think. All of these projects sound like just so fascinating and diverse, and I can't wait to um, read more about them and hear more about it. And I love also with this particular book you've opened, it seems like you've opened this sort of can of worms of so much more research and so many more research questions that's going to come from this. It's fascinating. So once again, I'm Jane Richards, and I've been speaking with Professor Lisa Waddington about their book, which was published in 2018 by Oxford University Press. It's the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities in Practice, a Comparative Analysis of the Role of Courts. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Jane. Much appreciated. I now have the pleasure of speaking with Professor Anna Lawson from the University of Leeds. Now, Anna, uh, Lisa's already given us a really good sort of overview and introduction, so it'll be great to just jump straight in. Um, I want to talk a bit about the contribution to the literature of, of your book. So now the CRPD is a relatively new treaty. It was adopted in December 2006 and it entered into force in 2008. Now, there is quite already a massive array of academic literature on the convention, but your book offers a very first extensive comparative analysis of the CRPD and how it's being interpreted and applied by the courts in different jurisdictions. I wonder if you can talk more about the contribution to the disability rights literature that your book makes. Yes. Hi, Jane, and thank you so much for that question. Um, yes, yeah, so as you say, there is there is a lot of literature um, on the CRPD and more so now obviously than when we started writing this book which probably was 2015 2016 um, but and there are quite a lot of edited collections particularly which which look at different jurisdictions and the way that the CRPD is is being implemented um, or different aspects of the CRPD are being implemented in those jurisdictions I think what's what's distinctive and novel about ours is that it's um, it's a more systematic kind of analysis, which which looks at exactly the same kind of questions. So it's in a very structured way um, for the different jurisdictions that it covers, and it's focusing particularly on the the, the role of courts, whereas um, other 
other juris other books tend to focus in on you know the chapters in them tend to focus in on particular substantive issues and look at how they're being dealt with not just by the courts but also in terms of legislation um and practice and policy so yeah i think those two things are distinctive a the systematic kind of structured approach across the different jurisdictions and b the fact that it's got a particular focus on courts and their role yeah and in that sense the methodology was very interesting um can you talk a bit more about this especially how you selected the jurisdictions because it was so expansive you know um Mm -hmm. there were 19 chapters and yeah many many jurisdictions I don't know how you did it (laughs) No, thanks, Jane. That actually, it took us quite a while to to get started on the project, and some of that was um, identifying jurisdictions and potential authors. So we had we had a number of um, criteria that we used to select um, the jurisdictions. Um, one of which was we were aiming for a wide geographical reach. Um, and a wide kind of legal reach. So covering different parts of the world, but also covering um, jurisdictions with different types of legal approach. So common law approach or civil law approach, for instance. So we wanted that kind of diversity, but we also needed countries where um, there was already a a significant number of of cases engaging with the CRPD. And we we had to... um, sadly wave goodbye to a number of candidates on the basis that like Canada um, we started with that but there weren't at that time enough cases that really had engaged with the CRPD to to have a chapter on that Um, and then the other criteria that we needed was some an author who was um, expert in the CRPD and also happy to write in English so that was our criteria for selecting um in terms of the methods yeah I could I could go on to say a bit more about the methods but shall I yeah uh, yeah please um, do it's really interesting yeah okay so we we did we did have a lot of discussion Lisa and I about the methods um and the focus of the book and we consciously um made choices I think every um has to be made in every project around um what's manageable in the time that you have and the resources that you have. And so our focus was on courts, which was a distinctive contribution of the, of the book. Um, and we were aware of, of limits to our methods. So we, we, um, we wanted to engage with, um, to, to have different chapters written by authors who were experts in that system. Sorry, this isn't a limit, but <laughs> that, that was one of our choices. And that was something that was a bit novel as well. That was something that Chris McCrudden hadn't done, for instance, in his work on CEDAW, where he'd actually um, written the, the entirety of the um, analysis on different different countries. But we thought it would be helpful in this book to have contributions from experts who who were familiar with the particular legal system um, and it was them who did the translation. So we actually are very indebted to, to the authors of the country chapters. It was a huge amount of work for them and the book, the book success really depends in large part on, on their, their efforts and their interpretations and their expertise. In terms of limits of the methods, 
um, that we used, we were aware that by focusing only on reported judgments, um, we would be limiting the, the, the conclusions we could draw. So we didn't do interviews, we didn't carry out interviews with judges or, or people who were engaging with, trying to engage with the legal system in the different countries. And that would have really led to a deeper understanding of what was what was going on and the impact of the CRPD than it's possible to glean just from looking at what's said in reported judgments. Um, so that that is a limit, but I think it was an important starting place to 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 look at what's said in these reported judgments. Um, and it, it it's that that we did in this book, and I think it gives us important insights and also raised questions for for further work. That was um, that it was really something I loved about the book, the the expanse of the authors and how you did actually. Um, have authors from those countries writing about the CRPD and how it is applied by the courts. Like, for example, there was chapters on the European Council, Italy, Kenya, Mexico, Argentina. It was just so diverse. And, I mean, even myself having done research in, you know, disability scholarship, I just it was really eye-opening because these are not the sort of usual chapters or research that you see, especially as a you know, an English speaker and writer. So it was really like a strength of the book, um, its diversity. That's, that's great to hear. Yes, that's something I think we enjoyed. Mm. We, we, we really wanted that to happen, but we particularly um, enjoyed learning as we were, as we were doing the editing and analysis, uh, learning about what was going on in those jurisdictions that we're less familiar with as well. Yeah, I mean, even beyond the CRPD, I actually just learned things about um, civil law systems and how it, how uh, international law is incorporated into domestic law generally um, between the monoist and dualist system. So that was fascinating. Um, very, very comprehensive. Excellent. Now, Lisa's spoken already about some of the unexpected findings to come out of this research. I'm wondering if you can tell me what you found that was not so surprising? For example, <laughs> yeah, were there any things that you, you expected that were consistent with what you anticipated? Ah, um, yeah, so I think in some ways it's a question of degree. So we, um, Lisa's probably mentioned that um, we, we were a bit surprised by the fact that there wasn't more of a difference between um, the engagement of monist countries and dualist countries with the CRPD, the way that they were using the CRPD and the, the courts were using the, the CRPD to, to make changes um, to legal doctrines and approaches. Um, so we were surprised by the fact that there wasn't more, but I think one of the things we were expecting was that there would be a difference and there was a difference. So, um, Countries that had more modest approaches were um, much, there was much more use of the CRPD to do, to, to um, make radical change. So, um, in countries like um, Russia and Mexico and Argentina and Spain to some extent, um, 
there were kind of legislation, examples of legislation being overturned or of previous legal doctrine um, being significantly overturned, whereas that just didn't happen in the dualist countries. Um, I think where they coincided much more was um, in the use of other techniques to, to use the CRPD, which weren't quite so interventionist. And there was, there was also a reluctance amongst the Monist countries even to use these interventionist strategies. But, but nevertheless, we were expecting, we did find that where there was interventionist, strongly interventionist approaches by the courts, it was in those countries with Monist um, backgrounds. It was, um, it was certainly very interesting to read because, um, you know, I do mostly research in dualist uh, countries mm. and it's just so interesting how innovative um, some of the judgments were in the monoist countries. Um, it was, yeah, fascinating. Now, yeah. turning to the specific provisions in the CRPD, were there any that made a greater impact than others? Uh, yes. Um, I think Article 12 and Article 5. So Article 12 for those, of, those people who aren't so familiar with the CRPD, is the one on um, legal capacity, on the right to equality before the law. Um, and Article 5 is the one on equality and non-discrimination. And those were the two that tended to be used to create the most um, radical changes. And also they, they tended to be used even in cases where the changes were were presented in less interventionist terms as well. So those were probably the two that I think um, had the biggest impact, um, but they were closely followed by um, other provisions around understanding of disability, but that was often not um, attributed to a specific provision of the CRPD. Um, it was more an approach to disability um, and access to justice. Actually, Article 13 tended to be used to influence practice. It was often not in such a big, overt way, but it nevertheless did influence what was going on. So, yeah, Article 12 and Article 5, I think, were the two big standout ones. And Article 12, as you mentioned, it's uh, received quite a lot of attention in scholarship. Um, and in the courts. So you wrote that the authors on the chapters of Australia, Ireland, Kenya and Mexico also found that this provision attracted the most interpretive attention in domestic courts. Now, would you say this reflects a meaningful paradigm shift? I think so, actually. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, in a lot of those countries and other ones, um, Article 12 was being used to, um, it, it, to to bolster a shift away from systems that relied very heavily on substituted decision-making towards a more supported decision-making approach. So I think it kind of maybe echoes what's been going on in legislation in various countries, um, but it also demonstrates the court's willingness to to move the law along a little bit to uh, along the lines of that paradigm shift. 
So would you go as far to say that the courts were likely to recognise a social model of disability? Um, so so that, that was fascinating because um, it was explicitly done by courts in Mexico and in Spain, um, but not, I don't think, elsewhere, although elsewhere there was reference to the fact that disability should be understood as a social problem rather than a medical problem. Um, so even though the language of the social model wasn't being used explicitly elsewhere, there was still this recognition of the fact that um, disability is a human rights issue, basically. Mm-hmm. So there was there was definitely a reflection of that kind of growing awareness amongst courts. And it's interesting to have it explicitly stated in judgments um, I think where this, the term social model was used, it wasn't always clear what was understood by it. And that's probably something that, that's common, not, you know, to, to literature as, as well as to courts. Um, so yeah, the term was explicitly used, but often it, it's not entirely clear what, what's, um, what's being understood by that. And I think that ties in with a point that you mentioned earlier with regards to how disability was defined. Um, And that was also one of the key provisions that the courts were concerned in interpreting the CRPD. Now, disability itself is not specifically defined in the convention, although Article 1 does say Mm. persons with disabilities include those who have long-term physical, mental, intellectual or sensory impairments, which in interaction with various barriers may hinder their full and effective participation in society, on an equal basis with all others. Can you talk more about the, how the, the terminology that was used in the book um, and also the, any uniformity or inconsistencies that struck you across jurisdictions um, with relation to how disability was defined? Yes. So we, um, because we were only looking at reported cases, um, the definition of disability varies depending on what the case is about. So even in one jurisdiction, you might get several definitions of disability for different purposes. Um, so, you know, for access to one one type of social protection benefit, the eligibility might be defined in one way, whereas um, for purposes of discrimination law, it might be defined quite differently. Um, so th- th- we were there were as as you'd expect and we expected there were you know lots of different types of definition of disability um i think a, there was where where the definition of disability was engaged within these judgments um the crpd was often mentioned in connection with a, a, a broadening approach towards who should be within that category for various legal purposes um but I think just in terms of the terminology, that probably varied even within jurisdictions. Um, but I, as I mentioned before, there was this this emphasis in quite a few of the judgments in different countries of the fact that the CRPD was um, heralding um, this more social approach, this recognition um that disability is a social and human rights problem and not one that should be responded to by pity or charity 
um, or, or exclusively medicine, but required social change and human rights implementation. Yeah, so, so I think in terms of the definition of disability, it was often mentioned in connection with, with courts adopting a, a, an expansive approach to who should be treated as disabled. Um, but it, it probably, it, I think in terms of inconsistency of terminology, that, that, that was due to many factors. Um, and we didn't really... We didn't really reflect too much on that because of the fact that the definition is used in different ways for different purposes, even within jurisdictions. Yeah. And then turning to the sort of interpretation techniques that the judges use, can you talk about um, what interpretation techniques yeah, were used in domestic courts? Yes, I won't say too much about this because I think Lisa also covered this. Yeah. Um, but we did find... Uh, so we, one of our general findings was that often the CRPD wasn't itself interpreted in much depth. Um, so it was often mentioned in terms of an expansive approach to interpreting domestic law, but it was the domestic law that was being interpreted and developed rather than the CRPD that was being interpreted. Um, where the CRPD was interpreted... Um, Again, very frequently, there wasn't an explicit um, explanation by the judge of, of what techniques they were using to, um, to interpret it. But there were, we did find a couple of cases. Um, there was one Australian case where um, they meant, the judge mentioned that they, he was using the Vienna Convention, the approach in the Vienna Convention yeah. to interpret the CRPD. Um, and actually then, then went through the process quite, quite rigorously and carefully, which was interesting. Um, and then we did come across, I think it was in Argentina, a reference to the more kind of expansive approach that's often adopted in Latin American countries to adopt, to interpret international human rights in the most expansive way possible. Um, and that, that did come through in the judgments, actually, that, that much more, um, and they're, they're obviously modest countries, um, but that much more um, expansive in, in approach to interpretation of international law and willingness, as, as well as the willingness to apply it in the domestic context. Right. And so then were there many convergences or inconsistencies uh, between uh, between and how the CRPD was interpreted by domestic courts? Yeah, that's one of the things we were a bit disappointed by. And maybe this project needs to be repeated in, a, in 10 years' time or something when there are more cases. Um, but I think because we were just looking at reported judgments, um, they obviously focus in on particular issues that are being litigated in, in that case. Um, and we didn't, and, and because the CRPD was often not, you know, the interpretation of the CRPD was not often dealt with in much depth, it, we didn't really have much material to work with in terms of identifying whether the interpretations of the CRPD were converging or diverging. Um, at this stage. Um, 
I think, as I've mentioned, though, in terms of Article 12, though, at a very high level, and this probably is no surprise to anybody, it was clearly being interpreted. There was convergence around the fact that it was being interpreted to require a move away from substituted decision making um, towards systems of putting in place support for um, disabled people to make their own decisions um, and have those decisions respected and given legal effect. Um, and also within Article 5, um, and again, this will be no surprise because it's so obvious from the CRPD, um, the fact that it's it's being interpreted to require that um, equality commitments in constitutions in these the countries we were looking at, but also non-discrimination legislation should include um, reasonable accommodation duties. And if they weren't present, then they were being read in. The courts were reading them in because of the CRPD. So there was convergence, but at, at such a high level that really it's almost not interesting because it's so obvious <laughs> from the CRPD. But those, I think, I think it would be interesting to do this this type of analysis again in in some time and see whether we have more reported judgments to work with so that we can do that analysis again that sounds like another massive but also very interesting project <laughs> yeah <laughs> you'll be very busy um, <laughs> well it could be done by others too uh, that that's true <laughs> um so turning then to the aims of the book just to sort of bring it Altogether. So you write in the introduction that the book's got two interconnected aims. Firstly, to investigate and compare the ways in which the CRPD was in, has been interpreted and applied by the courts in different jurisdictions. And second, to investigate and understand how the CRPD influences domestic sphere. Can you expand on these further? Yes. So I think... Um... Hi, much of what we've been saying links to these two aims already. Mm. Um, so with the first one, the comparative one, um, I think that probably is, uh, you know, we, we found most of our findings um, I've touched on already. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, in terms of the the influence of the C how the CRPD is understanding how the CRPD is working at the domestic level. Um, that's so that was we really wanted to think about how what role courts are doing to implement the CRPD at the domestic level. And I think one of the key findings there was probably the th point that Lisa covered in the question you asked her about what we were surprised by, which was the reluctance you know, the, a certain amount of hesitation or caution about using the CRPD, even in countries which are monist. And this doesn't mean it never happens. There were examples of them being, of, of them being very interventionist on the basis of the CRPD um, to, to overturn and change domestic law. Um, but really, I think um, the the finding that without legislation, without legislative change, what the courts can do is fairly limited or what the courts can present themselves as doing at least is fairly limited. Um, and so although courts really do have a very important role to play, um, I think this this book doesn't 
doesn't by any means say we can leave it to the courts. Mm-hmm. It's it's it shows the importance of having um, a, a CRPD oriented um, legislative and policy base within which the courts can work. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, that makes total sense. Um, it's interesting. Uh, you know, the courts can take some role in mm. rights protection, but we can't leave this role exclusively to the courts. No. No. Um, so I guess just sort of building on that question a little, um, and perhaps if it's not too repetitive, perhaps you've already answered it somewhat, just reflecting on these aims, how would you say the book achieves what you set out to do? Um. So I think the book um, achieves what we set out to do because although we had expectations, we didn't have, um, we weren't trying to prove a particular point. So we were trying to explore these two questions, you know, what differences are there? How how do countries differ in in the way the courts are um, interpreting and applying the CRPD? Um, what role is our courts playing in in the domestic sphere in different countries? Um, so I think we we kind of produced lots of data um, and reflection to ad- ad- address those questions. Um, but also, I think importantly, we we I think identify the need for more work to to be done in order to take these questions further, to take our understandings of what's happening in these two in these two respects further. So empirical work would certainly help interviews um, with judges, with um, lawyers who are active in the courts, with NGOs um, and human rights institutions about how to you know how how effective they feel the CRPD is is being in influencing what's happening in courts, which may be different from what judges feel able to say in in their reported judgments. Um, so I think we we've identified the need for further work along those lines, and maybe also further work. Um, along the lines, lines I mentioned before around, you know, a, a later analysis when we have more reported cases to work on, perhaps from other countries as well. But certainly from the countries we've already looked at, um, it would be interesting to have a richer database in 10 years time of, of, of more reported judgments to look at. Yeah, I certainly do feel you achieve that. You've created this wonderfully broad base um that can support, you know, so many further research questions and so much more research. So, yeah, I'll very much look forward to reading more. Um, and now, Anna, I've taken up a lot of your time, but just before you go, I'm wondering if you could tell me what you're working on now. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm working on um, two projects with Lisa. Um, so one is um, the European disability expertise network for the European Commission. So Lisa and I are both working on coordinating thematic reports for them. 
Um, and that's that's a network which works in similar ways to to our book, actually. So it, it draws on reports from national experts um, who who write in accordance with um, structured templates that we we're, we're involved in designing. Um, so I'm coordinating a report on COVID-19 and the way that different countries across Europe have, have responded to um, disability inclusion within their responses to COVID-19. Um, and Lisa's coordinating a report on um, new technologies and disabled people. And then I'm working on another project with Lisa, which is looking at the way reasonable accommodation duties um, can and have been used in response to COVID-19 and emergencies. Um, and that's part of a bigger project coordinated by the University of Oxford. But apart from that, I'm my main my main um, two areas, I think. Um, first of all, is a project which is funded by the European Research um, Council, which is looking at inclusive public space. And this is another comparative project, but here it's not so many jurisdictions. I've, we've got um, the UK, the Netherlands, the US, and also Kenya and India, which are two of the countries that were in the book. And um, this is really thinking about the way law, different types of law, so, so starting from the international level and human rights level and all sustainable development goals, but filtering down to the domestic, you know, the national level and the local level, um, how law um, shapes space, in particular city streets is what we're focusing on in the project. So how law is used to shape those spaces in ways that are inclusive or actually how law helps to create exclusion and barriers within them. And then what resort, how useful the law is to people who do encounter barriers in, in sharing, navigating, using those spaces um, to make complaints, but also to make change at a more structural level. So that's, that's a big five-year project. And we're in the middle of that one. I'm in the middle of that one at the moment. It's been impacted by COVID, unfortunately. So we've 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 had to change what we're doing quite a bit, which is, has presented challenges. Um, and then the other project is a smaller project, um, which is a participatory action research project um, in China and Hong Kong and Taiwan. So um, we're we're basically working with um, disabled people um, to um, who who themselves want to carry out research on a particular um, issue that's relevant to their advocacy, to their their um, work around um, inclusion, enhancing inclusion. Um, to produce more understanding of what's going on in that particular area, gather evidence about it that could be then used to deepen understanding of the issue, but also to um, gather, you know, to create solidarity around it and work towards greater inclusion. And that's again underpinned by the CRPD. 
That all sounds, so, yeah, that, I mean, that all sounds really fascinating. Um, <laughs> no, and it sounds like you're going to be so busy. Um, I'm particularly interested in the the last project you mentioned, just because mm. I am based in Hong Kong. So, I, yeah, I think that will be fascinating um, to read about and to yes. yeah, hear about your findings. Uh, yes, it's been so interesting, actually. And, yeah, the, the people that we've worked with have all been amazing, are all amazing people. But we haven't published much yet, but that will be happening over the course of this year and next year on, on that. So I shall keep you in the loop. Yes, please do. I'll very much look forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> now, just to wrap up, I'm Jane Richards, and I've been speaking just now with Anna Lawson. Her and my previous guest, Lisa Waddington, were the editors of a very extensive, very comprehensive, wonderful book, uh, The UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities in Practice, A Comparative Analysis of the Role of the Courts. Anna, thank you for your time. Thank you so much for yours, Jane.